0: It's hard to love our neighbors if we don't know what love is. If God is love, we can't define God by what the world says love is. We have to define love by what the Bible says God is. So as we're going through the book of Romans, we're getting closer and closer to the end tonight, chapter 14. So before we dig into that, let's sort of recap a little bit of what we talked about last week so we can understand the transition into what we're talking about. Now, Romans 13 is really uh, broken up into three sections. There's It's a short chapter, but there's three sections to it. It's really about being a good citizen, how you submit to the governing authorities, where do you draw lines in terms of rebellion, and that really has to do with, is what the governing authorities are telling me to do opposed to the actual laws of the nation, the higher laws, or the local authorities breaking the higher laws? Or uh, is it preventing me from worshiping God or following through on what the Scriptures tell me to do? If that is the case, then rebellion is warranted, as is shown through many uh, areas of Scripture, mainly Daniel, uh, and think of the midwives, Uh, Ignoring Pharaoh's call to kill the babies, and also uh, in the book of Acts and the rebellion of the disciples uh, when the Sanhedrin wanted them to stop preaching Jesus, and also Paul himself when he goes to, he appeals to Caesar when the local authorities break their rules in regards to Paul because he's a Roman citizen. He appeals to the highest authority. So the first section is really being a good citizen. The next section is about being a good Samaritan. How do we treat the world? How do we treat the world around us? Um, Do we love better than the world around us? Do we care? How do we show love? What is love? Um, Love is really caring for our brothers and sisters in the world around us and their their physical needs, and more importantly, the spiritual needs, the gospel. Um, It's not an affirmation of behavior. Um, affirmation of behavior actually causes harm. If you allow people to continue in sin, you're separating them further from God. Uh, It is actually the truth. The truth is the way to love people. Um, But how you speak the truth also matters. You can speak the truth arrogantly, or you can speak it humbly uh, and recognize you need a savior just as bad as the world does and present that offer to them. And the last section is really being alert. Um, being aware that in the last days things will get evil, things will get worse. Um, and if Paul knew he was living in the last days, almost 2,000 years later, how much closer are we to Jesus' return? And are we living with that in mind? So that's really chapter 13. And it ends with, you know, are we being a good Samaritan? Are we loving the world? and are we living with the end in mind? Do we understand? Are we excited about Jesus's return? Are we living like it could happen at any moment? Do we care about our neighbors? Do we care about the world hearing the gospel? That's how chapter 13 transitions into chapter 14, where chapter 14 is really about how we interact with one another as Christians. Now, uh, anybody here a 90s kid? Anybody grow up in the 90s? I did. Okay. Um, So if you don't know, uh, if you're older than that, maybe you remember the 90s. The 90s to me are a glorious time. It is maybe the greatest decade in American history. Um, As someone who grew up in the 90s, I'm completely unbiased about that. But here's what I can tell you about the 90s. The 90s had video game systems, but we didn't have internet gaming, so it didn't destroy our lives. We had... Access to the internet, but not smartphones. So we had the power of the internet without it consuming our lives. It was a glorious time. And the best part about the 90s was people had these things. Uh, maybe you remember this if you were alive back then. They had jobs that paid well. And the cost of living didn't destroy you. So it was a great time to be alive. Um, but there was also something about the 90s, particularly in Christian culture, that I very much remember as someone who entered into my faith really in the year 2000, right after all of it ended. There was this thing called purity culture. Um, if you know what I'm talking about, um, then great. You don't need to hear the explanation. You can tune out for the next minute. Otherwise, here's what's going on. There were a lot of books and, movements and um, conventions and like gatherings, concerts, and all kinds of stuff that were written and talked about as part of Christian culture and even seeped into mainstream culture in the 90s. Because like I said, the 90s were the greatest decade ever. And all of the most of the TV programming in the 90s was very wholesome. Right? There was even a TV show, can you believe it, in the nineties called Family Matters you watch TV now, it is the opposite of that. But this idea of purity culture, of being very wholesome and good, kind of took over Christianity and almost to the point where we were so much more concerned about our behavior and how we presented ourselves to the world that we forgot, the church forgot to actually care about doctrine and truth. And what the gospel says we just wanted to look really good and virtuous in front of others, and that has caused a lot of pain as time has go- gone on, because appearing virtuous to the world as the world changes, changes its moral values has hurt the church that has been more concerned about appearing virtuous to the world than holding to doctrinal truth. So that is a little bit of what we're going to talk about today, because how we talk to one another, how we draw lines in the sand, matter. So chapter 14 of Romans is really about how we draw the right lines and where do we not draw lines and just be okay with others. This idea of purity culture that took over the church is one that seeped in. Almost our behaviors and convictions became more important than doctrine. And Romans 14 sets us straight. Doctrine is more important than personal convictions, Um, meaning we need to draw the right lines. So let's dig into it. Uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to, not to disputes over doubtful things. So it opens up giving us the idea of what Paul is going to be going into here as we talk about how we deal with one another. So receive one who is weak in the faith. Now, that sounds harsh, but i got to be honest, I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people who has areas of my faith, where I'm not as strong as others. I'll give you a great example. I have never drank. I have never consumed any alcohol. Uh, I don't, and I don't ever plan to. It's just not a part of my life. I have a standard in my heart that I want to hold to. Um, Now, that is a personal conviction of mine. There's actually nothing in Scripture about abstaining from alcohol. There is abstaining from drunkenness, Um, and not over-consuming, but there's nothing wrong with consuming alcohol in general. So for me, I'm weak in that area of my faith. I don't touch alcohol at all. I don't go near it uh, because I'm worried about what could happen if I overindulge. So I avoid it. So I'm weak in that area of faith. Now, there would be a problem if I took that conviction and I placed it on you as though you had to have the same conviction as me because I'm weak in that area of my faith. This is what we're going to be talking about in this chapter. Now, the next verse states, For one who believes, he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. That's my life verse right there. (laughs) Right? So uh, if you only eat vegetables, you are weak. So it's a good thing to note. Uh, If you're vegan or vegetarian, write that down. Um, Really, this is a perfect example of not taking things out of context. This is also something, if you didn't know this, this is important. Chapters and verses did not exist in the original scriptures, which made it a whole lot harder to take things out of context because you had to read the whole scroll instead of just a single snippet taken out of context. Uh, if you took this verse out of context, you could be very mean to people who eat a vegetarian diet. And, to be honest, I would understand. <laughs> I am a little bit mean to particularly vegans. What's the deal? How can you not eat eggs or milk? That's the ingredient of, those are the ingredients of everything we enjoy in life. Cake, pancakes, brownies. Eggs. Um, so I understand, but don't take it out of context because what Paul is really saying is in this time frame, as people were converting to Christianity out of a very pagan culture for the Gentiles and also out of a Jewish tradition for the Jews who had very strict dietary needs, you had these problems that the pagan markets. In the cities, were filled with meat that had been sacrificed to idols, and so there were some who would go to the market and basically buy the meat and go. Well, I know that God's not re- that God that the- they offered this stake up to is not real, and I worship the one true God. So this isn't going; it doesn't bother me at all, and I save money. Great, but there were other people who had converted, maybe from the pagan tradition, and were afraid of what it would mean to consume meat that had been sacrificed to idols when they're trying to worship the one true God when they had once served that false God. And so what it's really saying is some people will have convictions that they need to keep themselves safe. All right, So don't hate those or don't judge those who put extra uh, boundaries around their faith to keep themselves safe. Don't judge them, um, but recognize maybe that's a weakness Weakness area in their faith in that, in order to keep themselves from falling into sin, they have this extra boundary. So verse 3, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Basically it's saying, hey, if you have this conviction and you follow through on it, good for you. Um. If you don't have that conviction, don't judge people that do. If you do have that conviction, don't look, at, don't look down on people that don't, because actually their faith is not affected by, say, the meat sacrificed by idols. They know they're worshiping the one true God, and they have no problem eating the meat. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for God who is able to make him stand. Now. As Paul is opening this up and talking about these ideas of these personal convictions that we have, you know, like alcohol, tattoos, uh, the type of dietary needs that you might have or don't have, um, what he's really saying is in these areas, if someone has an extra boundary, don't judge them. In fact, be sensitive to it, Um, but also don't force that conviction on everybody else because it's not an actual matter of doctrine. Now, when he says don't judge them, he's saying don't judge someone because they don't have the same dietary restrictions as you. If you feel like you need to eat according to Jewish law and you avoid pork and shellfish, good for you. Um, But you don't have to, so don't force that conviction on everybody else. But that's not a doctrinal matter. That's not a Jesus is part of the Trinity, he died, physically resurrected, and rose again. Those are things that matter. This is something where we can have a little bit of sensitivity to one another. Know where you're drawing the lines and draw the right lines when you're dealing with convictions. So it says one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Now this is important. We're here on a Saturday night. Now, I'll get into it in a little bit, but there actually is a consistent argument still today, 2,000 years later, about what day we should be worshiping. And I'll tell you why. See, Sunday is known as the Lord's Day. It's known as the Lord's Day because that's the day that Jesus was resurrected. And actually, you can infer from the book of Acts, it tells us that they met together on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, and they met that day because of the resurrection of Jesus. However, there were still some that were tied to Jewish law and said we should worship on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is Saturday. That's still true. The Sabbath didn't switch to Sunday. The Sabbath is still the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. And the Lord's Day is Sunday, but yet over time and through weird traditional things, people started calling the church uh, Sunday Sabbath. And um, back when we were really, more Christian society, a lot of things were closed on Sunday for that exact reason, because people abstain from working and shopping and things like that on Sundays, but the truth is Saturday is the Sabbath, Sunday is the Lord's Day, and there was an argument and a debate about when to worship and things like that, because there was a Jewish contingent who We're still holding to the law, and there were some who were saying, let's worship on Sunday because it's the Lord's day, the day that Jesus resurrected. And Paul is basically saying, do what you're convicted to do. Be convinced in your own mind. It's not a matter of doctrine, worship as you see fit, when you see fit. Not as you see fit, when you see fit. If it was just worship as you see fit, that would be a problem. All right, but we're not going to get into that. So, He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. What he's basically saying here is the Christians among you who are worshiping on Saturday are doing so because they feel convicted to do so, and they're doing it for the sake of worshiping God. Uh, Those who hold to a strict dietary uh, Jewish law, they're doing it because... They want to worship God through it. And those who don't do that, those who worship on Sunday, are worshiping on Sunday because of the new covenant and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Those who are not holding to the strict Jewish dietary laws are doing so because they experience the liberty of grace in salvation. Both are doing it to honor God. Neither is wrong as long as the intent is to honor God and worship him. That's what's being said. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For this, to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Now this is something I think the church needs to do a better job at. The church is really good at arguing with each other over petty issues that are not doctrinal. We are really good at creating division amongst ourselves for reasons that just don't make sense to me. And here's the other thing. As Paul is stating, if you're really convinced that you are right about your conviction and this other denomination is completely wrong about their conviction, Don't you realize that all of us stand before the judgment of God and he judges correctly and rightly? Why do you see it as your role to condemn someone when that's God's work? God is the judge. So you might try to correct or have a debate and an honest, open discussion where you can still walk away both loving each other and loving God, but why do you need to condemn your brother or sister when we all stand before the judgment of God? We know God's going to get it right. So who are we to tell God what to think? That's silly. So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. If there's a verse that should scare you, it's that one. Every one of us shall give account of ourselves to God. And God knows everything that we've ever done, thought, wanted to do, everything we didn't do that we should have done, uh, and we stand before him at some point and give account for ourselves. That's a scary thing, because you can't pull the wool over his eyes. He will know. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So Paul as he's going through this, points out that, hey, God's going to judge us all. We all stand before God. God's going to get it right. So why in these small things do we create division rather than unity when God's going to judge it at the end? And we'll all know the answer at that point. Instead, what we should do, instead of arguing and creating division and and hatred and issues like that, uh, we should actually come together in unity and actually not try to put a stumbling block in front of our brothers and sisters. So if you're someone like me who does not drink, or if you were someone who in the past maybe has a problem with, with alcohol or had an issue with indulging too much in it, and you really can't have any, then why would you present that during a gathering together to someone that that might hurt? Maybe you shouldn't. Now, if you're on your own with People that you know, and you know that they don't have a problem with it, and it's up to you. Fine, whatever. Crack open your bottle of wine. That's cool, but do not present it to someone who it could cause an issue for. You know, uh, but also don't force your conviction. If you're someone like me, onto others who just aren't that weak in the faith in that area. Right. And that's what Paul is really saying here. So as we interact with one another, what we need to do is discern what is doctrinal versus what is just personal. And things that are personal don't create division over things that are doctrinal that we correct on. And we have an issue with creating personal conviction into doctrine. And I think a lot of that is a result of that purity culture um, where we elevated how we acted so that we could appear virtuous to the world and then have put that on everyone else when really it's not scriptural or doctrinal for those things to be like that. So then, each of us shall give account to himself before God. Right? Don't be a stumbling block. Don't cause your brother to fall. Don't create problems for your brothers and sisters. Don't put them in a situation where we might tempt them for their personal conviction. Verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So if there is someone out there, basically this mimics Paul's other words where he says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is is edifying. What he's really saying is, look, because I am, have the grace and the saving grace of Jesus Christ, and I am saved, and I, am, I have put on his righteousness, and I now have the power of the Holy Spirit running through me. When I walk through the market and I see that steak that was sacrificed to an idol, I know that God's not real. I know who, God, I know who the true God is. It's not preventing me from eating that steak. It's not, it's not bad for me because I know that that doesn't really matter. But if you are someone who maybe has a struggle... And you have a conviction not to eat that steak, then don't. Because if that conviction is in you, then maybe you have a weakness that you shouldn't tempt yourself with. Or you're going to condemn yourself because you didn't have the faith to eat it. You're not doing it in faith. You're doing it out of fitting in. Don't do that. So therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Or I'm sorry, I skipped some stuff. Here we go. Uh, Nothing unclean of itself, but him who considers anything to be unclean to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. So, it's interesting that Paul goes through the liberties we have under the saving grace of Christ. There are pieces of the law we no longer have to. Observe. We can eat shellfish and pork because we're no longer under the law. That's okay. But if doing those things actually causes harm to someone around you because of their own personal convictions, then you're not doing something in love. And that is where it becomes a problem. You are not acting in the way Jesus told us to act. For he told us to love one another, that's how the world would know that we are his. And so if we're actually taunting the people around us because we don't have the same personal conviction as them, even though we have the liberty to do that, we're actually sinning because we're not acting in love. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is really important. While we might have been given liberty from the law because of Christ's sacrifice, that liberty is not the reason for Christ's sacrifice. We were freed from sin, not freed to sin. And so even though we might have freedom to do something like eat shellfish and pork, Um, that doesn't mean that we should all the time if it's going to cause someone else to struggle, struggle because we're not acting in love, because that freedom is not the purpose of Christ's sacrifice. The purpose of Christ's sacrifice is to bring us the separation from God back to reconciliation so that we can experience heaven and experience the kingdom of God, which is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. So, while we might squabble over little things or cause division, why are we doing that when we should really be pursuing unity and peace if it's not a doctrinal issue? And by doing so, we should be encouraging and edifying one another. We should be supporting each other and strengthening each other, not weakening each other and creating division. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles. It is offended. Or is made weak. And so you get this as Paul is closing up this thought, he's saying to the person who doesn't have that conviction if you don't have that conviction to not drink, or if you don't have that conviction, So that you need to worship on the Sabbath, you can worship on Sunday, or who cares what what day of the week you worship on, as long as you're actually worshiping God. If you're not someone with that conviction, be careful how you act around the people who do have those convictions, because in those areas of their faith, they are weak. And it is your job to edify them, not judge them because they have extra convictions. It might not be a doctrinal matter. Therefore, don't create division so that you can show them the liberty they have. The reason they might not be experiencing that liberty is because of the weakness in their faith. And by observing those convictions, they're keeping themselves in line with Christ. So be careful how you treat someone who does have those convictions. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Basically saying, if you don't have those convictions, great. You can experience that liberty in Christ, just don't rub it in the face of someone who does have those convictions. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. So, ultimately the point is, if you are someone who thinks you need to worship on the Sabbath, you're convinced that the Sabbath is the day meant set aside for worship, that is in your head, or if you are someone who thinks you should follow the Jewish dietary restrictions and you should not eat shellfish or pork, right? If that is in your head and that is who you are, if you do those things, if you worship on Sunday instead of Saturday, if you eat shellfish or pork and you do it outside of the faith that you have, that's a weakness in your faith, you're actually condemning yourself. You are sinning because you don't have the faith that it's okay you should actually follow those convictions so that you can be in line with God because you have a weakness and that weakness you should give over to God and follow it and God is saying if you're doing something outside of your own faith if you're convict you're convicted that you need to keep the sabbath holy and keep that day saturday and you're not doing it well then you're actually acting outside of your own convictions with God you're condemning yourself before God by not acting by your own standard that you have with God. That's a problem. And so as we deal with this chapter 14 and everything that's in there, there's really two common themes and one thing that matters. The two themes are unity is more important than division. So in an era where we are able to argue with each other, even when we don't know each other because we don't live in the same community because of the internet, we have become more divisive more argumentative, and created more division among the church than ever. Meanwhile, we actually have the ability to communicate with each other constantly all the time, and it hasn't created unity, it's created division. Unity is better than division. And we need to draw the right lines on the things we correct and don't correct over. So in order to pursue unity, we need to know what the things are worth arguing about. So unity is better than division, and we need to know where the areas are that are worth arguing about. How do we draw those lines? We need to know doctrine. We need to know what the truth is. We need to know what this book says. Because if it's not doctrinal and it's just personal, like, say, a conviction about alcohol or dietary food or which day to worship, then there's no reason to argue about it. But if you're dealing with something important like the Trinity or salvation, uh, then those things are worth arguing about. Because if it's doctrinal and not personal, then we should try to correct. If it's personal and not doctrinal, then who cares? Um, That is really the summary of this chapter. Unity is better than division. Draw the right lines. Know the difference between doctrinal and and personal. So as we close up today and really think about what's being said here, I just want to say this church was born out of a church that closed. We held a Bible study uh, while that church was still open, Parkminster, and that Bible study grew and reached people outside of the normal attendance, uh, and as that church was closing, there were people who said, we would like to continue meeting together. We would like to continue the Bible study and the ministry that's going on there. Um, can we start a church? And so we did. Instead of continuing to pursue, pursue keeping that church open, we decided to start a completely different entity, mostly filled with people who were part of that previous church, some who were not. And the reason we didn't continue to pursue, one of the reasons, there were many, but one of the reasons we didn't continue to pursue staying that church is because of the doctrinal differences that that denomination had with us. There is a denomination, it's part of a denomination that started to move very cultural. And because of that, we couldn't really hire a pastor because The pastors who were interested in the job were interested in theology that we didn't agree with. I couldn't get ordained because I didn't want to be ordained by that organization. Um, And so we cut ties. We moved on. We started something new. We're a place where we could stand on and have in our bylaws a theology that makes sense because it's based on this book, not what culture wants us to believe or think. Yet, We still have a world around us that doesn't know what this is. In fact, sometimes within our own walls, there are people that don't know what's inside this book because the church for too long has ignored going through it, instead has just had motivational speeches based on a few stories within it to make you feel good every Sunday. That's not going to happen here. I think one of the biggest problems with the church acting like Christ is that we don't know him. It's hard to know who God is if you don't know what he wrote in his word. It's that simple. So our goal, our mission statement is this. No love share to know God deeply through the revelation of his word to love him and our neighbors because Christ first loved us and to share the good news of the gospel as far as God allows us to reach from next door to across the globe. The first piece of that mission statement is to know God deeply through the revelation of his word. Because if we don't know God and we don't know what he says, it's hard to share the correct gospel. It's hard to love our neighbors if we don't know what love is. If God is love, we can't define God by what the world says love is. We have to define love by what the Bible says God is. And so in order to love them, we have to know God. So we got to start there. And so we go through Scripture verse by verse because we need to know what it says. We need to know who God is in order to love the world correctly and to share the gospel correctly. Nothing makes me sadder than this. I know people who have gone to church for decades, every single week of their lives, and have never once walked out of a church service knowing God and his word any better. That, to me, is a travesty and something I do not want to ever happen here. Our goal is every week to not have that happen. If you walk out in these doors and out of them, I hope you heard something directly from this book that you can take with you so that you can know God and his word better because that's the first step to loving our neighbors the way Christ wants us to and to sharing the gospel because we know God through the revelation of his word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through this. Thank you for your people, your chosen ones, Israel, who have preserved this word for us and for the the New Testament authors and the early church who preserved the word for us to have. Thank you for those who put it together all in one volume, gave it to us to read. We have better access to your word than ever in human history. Yet, we have less knowledge of it than ever. Help us to right that ship and to know you better now and to share that with the world. In Jesus' name, amen.